Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program where we put on for our readers and followers of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for the entertainment and educational purposes of our readers and followers. With that, we hope you enjoy the show and are in a comfortable position to enjoy the discussion. We are talking with Dustin Garrow, Managing Principal at Nuclear Fuel Associates. Dustin is a longtime consultant in the uranium mining business, as well as to the nuclear power industry. Dustin has well over 40 years in the business, holding numerous positions with U.S.-based nuclear industry participants. Before returning to his consulting business in 2015, Dustin held a high-level position at Paladin Energy. Dustin, how are you? Good. How are you doing, Andrew? Ah, doing well, doing well. Hey, before we get to our chat, uh, we want to say thanks for the uh, questions that came in from uh, Jacob L., WMD, Ann Hill O., and other Smith Weekly uh, readers and followers. Uh, Dustin, question for you. Um, for people who do not know, what service do, services do you provide at Nuclear Fuel Associates, and why should clients be contacting you? Uh, basically, as you pointed out in your introduction, I've spent uh, actually more than 40 years in the uh, the nuclear fuel markets, principally uranium, uh, but also conversion services. So I've worked for a number of uh, uranium production companies, uh, a number of them uh, U.S. domestic, and uh, as well as some foreign ones, as you mentioned, Paladin, and uh, basically, uh, you know, focused on the supply demand picture. Um, with a, with an emphasis on the supply side. In other words, again, I've I've spent most of my career with uh, with primary producers, but also uh, you know in contact with virtually all the utilities worldwide, and so I have a pretty good feel. And I actually did work in a fuel group at Portland General Electric uh, very early days in my career, so I've got a a pretty good sense of how they go about uh, go about their business. But uh, but that's what I've been providing is kind of uh, both market and uh, contracting uh, consulting, uh, as well as, you know, a little bit higher level strategic um, thinking, uh, particularly for companies that uh, are either in the production area of uranium or want to be. And uh, the other thing uh, I, I can mention is that I am the chief commercial officer for the new investment fund, Yellow Cake PLC. And so we did the IPO that, uh, you know, was successful last July. But that was, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of discussions about the market and, uh, you know, where is it going post Fukushima and, uh, you know, what are the, the main drivers? In other words, what 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 has caused the price to go up and what looks like will continue to uh, to bolster, let's say, uh, upward momentum in the, in the uh, uranium price. Right. Um, well, I can see a number of number of different parties could use your services, whether it's a nuclear utility, the midstream. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, uranium mining business could can use the expertise, and and quite honestly, some of these some of these funds out there that are looking at the space, uh, they could probably use your expertise in in directing of of which way to go there. So I, that's good stuff. I appreciate that. Um, so you you were participating in the drafting of the 232 petition. Was there discussion with other U, uh, U.S. uranium businesses about joining the petition? Why didn't everyone get on board to make 100% representation? Uh, well, first of all, you know, I do uh, 
some work for Energy Fuels, one of the two primary uh, supporters of the, the 232 petition. And uh, uh, that's a really good question. I think that uh, some of them were a little hesitant because of the cost. You know, there was uh, and continue to be uh, attorney's fees, things like that. And uh, I think they, they, you know, they had a pretty full plate. I think they liked the idea, um, but were not really kind of, uh, let's say, in a position or, or uh, wanting to be, you know, directly identified with the, uh, the two uh, petitioning companies. Because, I mean, it, you know, it obviously uh, came, I think, as a surprise uh, to the market globally, uh, but particularly to the U.S. utilities as a, uh, you know, I guess potentially, the, you know, an increased uncertainty on how they're going to fill their future, uh, particularly uranium requirements. And now, as you know, the investigation has broadened to conversion and enrichment. So, you know, the Department of Commerce is looking pretty much at the front end of the fuel cycle. And, and what are, you know, it's not necessarily is it going to be there to help uh, fuel uh, commercial utility nuclear program requirements. But it is, you know, and we, it was, it was emphasized, it's national security. In other words, there is the Department of Defense that still uh, potentially will look toward more nuclear material uh, down the road. And one of the, the main drivers is, you know, does the government want to have a viable domestic fuel cycle uh, in support of, of obviously uh, operating nuclear plants, which have a national security kind of aspect because of the stability of the grid, uh, but also for the on the military side. You know, in other words, uh, as you may or may not know, um, if you are in, involved in the weapons side, which I was back when I was on active duty in the Navy, uh, you have to use U.S. origin material. Uh, you can't even use close ally, uh, you know, Australia, Canada, you name it. That material cannot go into your weapons program. So, you know, that that's really, I think, kind of the, the been the drivers. And I think, you know, a number of the smaller uh, producers that are either, you know, in production or, you know, are, are trying to get to that point uh, just basically said, hey, Yes, through the UPA, Uranium Producers of America, we clearly are interested. We think this is important, but they felt comfortable with your energy and energy fuels kind of, you know, I guess, carrying the load uh, forward. So that's kind of a long-winded answer to your question about, you know, why did it end up being, you know, the two producers uh, as, as the champions of the, the 232. Well, I'll knock I'll knock a little bit on the other way there for you. <clears throat> you know, f first of all, some of these some of these actors that, that proclaim to be uh, you know real reputable uranium businesses in the states uh, are, are maybe not so reputable as as they as they should be. So you, you certainly have some some promoters and some some different companies out there that I could see why Energy Fuels and Your Energy would not want uh, would want some of these folks as part of their petition. That's one. Um, and then also, as Mark Chalmers said, when we discussed uh, back a couple weeks ago, uh, he, you know, he said, uh, you know, some of these other businesses are out of Australia, they're out of Canada, they're out of uh, yeah. know, Russia, they're out of these other other questionable jurisdictions for this, for, you know, <laughs> applying to this situation. And so, uh, 
you know, I, 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 I see that answer and I see your answer too. And, uh, it makes, it makes sense, uh, you know, um, because there are some there that, uh, you know, they wanted someone else to pay for it or they're just, you know, they're just not quite cutting it as far as their, their, uh, their contribution there to the situation. And then also along those lines too, I think just recently the Navy, one of the Navy commanders or something, a news piece that came across the channels here was, was, was talking up, uh, you know, the importance of nuclear energy in the United States uh, from a national defense standpoint and also for the, the military uh, being able to do what they do. Um, so your, yep. your comments go right in line with that. And then, uh, you know, too, if, if, if Trump's going to step out and, and knock on GM for closing plants and cutting jobs <laughs> and, you know, if he's slapping, you know, Mari, uh, Mary Barra around, the, the CEO there at GM, then, mm-hmm. then why not? Why, why is the, the midstream, upstream, and downstream, the whole mess in the, in the uh, you know, fuel cycle? Uh, those are lost jobs. Those are closed uh, plants and so forth. So, you know, why not? So the, the 232 petition is going to be interesting to see how that works out. Yeah, and, you know, at this point, uh, there's a, a broad spectrum of uh, perspectives on it. But, yeah, just for the, you know, the listeners, you know, back in 1980, which was, I was already in the business at that time, there were more than 20,000, you know, uh, employed in the uranium business in the United States. Now, we were producing more than 40 million pounds a year, and, you know, we could get into the economics and the on and on and on. But, you know, it's right now, I saw a number the other day, it's around 500. So, I mean, the industry right. was effectively decimated, and I think the point is it's right on the cusp of effectively disappearing. So it's not like there's a lot of idle capacity. You know, there were some 26 uranium mills at one point, and now I think physically there's four, and there's only one that's operational, that's likely to operate in the future, which is energy fuels. So, I mean, you really don't have a lot of, a lot of idle capacity, but certainly enough to answer the, uh, the requirement for 25% uh, of what the petitioners had had recommended uh, 25% of uh, U.S. utility uranium needs, which would be about 10 million pounds a year, depending on which forecast you look at. So, you know, again, it's an industry that's uh, undergone tremendous change and in, in is, uh, is in, uh, in pretty, pretty uh, um, marginal condition right now. Let's put it that way. So, Right, and they're going to have difficulties meeting that 25% without some significant capital investment. So it'll be an interesting to see how that plays out. And you know, the, the decline of the, of the the industry jobs uh, is kind of like the decline in uranium stocks. I mean, it's kind of just flatlined and it's come down from its highs and just flatlined out and almost almost died off. Yeah. So it's, it's it's almost a correlation. So uh, next next uh, next subject. Uh, Will the U.S. Supreme Court side with or against Virginia Energy regarding their case to lift the state ban on uranium mining? Uh, an interesting question. And again, just a little bit of background, which I'm sure you're aware of. That deposit has really been around quite a while. You know, Union Carbide through Umetco Minerals owned it. And, you know, if memory serves me, it was literally back in the early 80s. And, and I think the important thing is technically, it's a very attractive deposit. I mean, you know, it, it, it's very mineable, um, would be open pit, I believe. Um, but again, I think when you say, you know, going to the Supreme Court, uh, that's a hard call to make. 
I mean, you know, it's kind of really states' rights versus the federal government. And, uh, you know, can they dictate to Virginia, you know, will they allow uranium mining in the state, which is different, we all know, than if they were going to open a coal mine or gravel pit or something. But, you know, with the, the changing complexion of the Supreme Court, uh, you know, with Justice Gorsuch and uh, Kavanaugh coming on, um, you know, there could be a pretty strong, you know, move toward uh, not allowing or, I guess, say, directing the state to lift the ban. So we'll just have to wait and see. I think it's one of these things. It's not clear cut. And uh, but from a from a, a, a personal asset standpoint, in other words, the owners of the deposit, you know, can they can they really take away that economic value from them? Um, but it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, it's not a big project. I think it's what three to four million pounds a year was the kind of proposed annual production, uh, you know, which would be less than 10 percent of the U.S. consumption and well, uh, you know, south of, uh, of global consumption, the way it's moving close to 200 million uh, fairly soon. So. Uh, well, I think we'll just have to wait and see. I mean, the fact that the Supreme Court was willing to take that that on shows they're clearly interested. And so, uh, you know, if I was betting, I'd be a little bit on the side that they direct the state to uh, lift the ban. But that's just me with being a non-attorney. So, right. No, that's good. It's good information. And uh, we <clears throat> we're trying to get Walter Coles to come on possibly and mm -hmm. chat with us about this because we, we, we've done a research for a time and, and, and Virginia energy of course has been a bumpy, a bumpy stock up and down, up and down yep. has been a, been, been a fun one to trade if you're a trader, but uh, <laughs> on the, on the subject uh, we had, uh, you know, listed Virginia as a speculation in our nuke report that we put out in, in mm -hmm. early 2017 and so Virginia, Virginia was thrown in there because, you know, Energy Fuels had some ownership. Sprott had some ownership. Yep. The stock the stock has a small amount of shares outstanding, and it's been a bumpy ride. But we, we threw that out there in the speculation column, and, uh, you know, uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And then, of course, the Supreme Court's a complete wild, you know, wild card, you know, between between Trump and 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 the, and the and Robert uh, Chief Justice there fighting oh, yeah. fighting on Twitter and, and the comments <laughs> about different crap. But you never know what happens at night in D.C. when they yep. all go home and have a cocktail and call each other. So you you never know. Yeah, you, you never know. But again, I think that's important. It's an important issue for the the listeners because there are technically attractive uranium deposits that just happen to be in the wrong place. In other words, because this is the most politically uh, charged uh, commodity, let's put it out there. I mean, you know, I've been told repeatedly uranium mining is the most heavily regulated mining activity in the world. You know, when you look across the entire, well, let's pick on Berkeley uh, and their project at Salamanca in Spain. I think they've already got 120 permits and licenses and they still can't move forward. They're still working on a couple more at the federal level. So, I mean, that, that's what you're looking at when you say, I'm going to get into the uranium mining business. It's not a local, you know, uh, town council that says, sure, go ahead and mine your deposit. It, it's an incredibly complex business. 
And sometimes logic has no place. In other words, you can say, hey, this, pro you know, this particular deposit should clearly move forward, and it can't. You know, and, and some right. of them never will. So, I, I mean, you, you know, the state I know you uh, uh, know well, Oregon. I mean, they have a ban on uranium mining. And, and even if it was, I don't think the, the population there would ever allow a uranium mine to go forward. It just isn't going to, isn't going to happen. So, so anyway, you know, that's part of the complexity of the, of the uranium industry in and of itself. Well, yeah. And, and with that too, you know, yeah, I think it's important for listeners to understand that, yeah, the, the location and, and the, the government, the red tape you're dealing with is important. So obviously, uh, you know, Spain, Spain's got some issues and, and, uh, there's a little bit of perversion at the, uh, the regulatory level there. Obviously, it's been 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 given a, a clear a clear view on that. And then with with yep. regards to your comments on Oregon, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm from the state, but it is a, in a sad state of affairs. No no pun intended. And yep. and you know the interesting thing is about the the uh, energy or I'm sorry the uh, Virginia energy stuff is that uh, you know it's on it, it's on state land. Whereas in Oregon, as you know, as you head out west, the federal government begins to become oh, yeah. the major landholder. And uh, so this, you know, and there is some uranium deposits on the, in the eastern Oregon area. Um, so out there, it's all BLM property, a little bit of, you know, Department of Agriculture, yep. U.S. Forest Service. Uh, but so it'll be, it, it, it is interesting out there if that ever becomes a fight with the state of Oregon and how that works on federal lands. It's going to be another battle at court. And uh, anyway, nonetheless, it's, it's uh, interesting stuff. So yeah, let's let's look forward to see what the Supreme Court does and how Virginia Energy goes. And uh, moving on, um, as a consultant to the industry, uh, you've seen and consulted with a number of companies. Today, looking at the sector, are there a few names that you like from an investor standpoint? Well, it, it won't surprise you. When we did the Yellow Cake IPO, we did uh, probably more than sixty one-on-one -on -one meetings or conference calls um, and and that came up fairly often you know when when uh, the investors uh, you know found out that I worked in the in the production side well who would you recommend I mean you know if you look globally obviously Cameco I mean it's going to be pretty much in everybody's portfolio uh, but first of all let me comment there's not a, a lot of companies you know with the consolidation and uh, you know we may or may not touch on the sale of Rossing by Rio Tinto to the Chinese. But, you know, you know, coming down to, say, the U.S., um, the reason I worked for Energy Fuels and I started, they were my first clients uh, after uh, departing Paladin, is they're in the best position, in my mind, to benefit when the market improves just because of production cap capability, uh, diversification of supply sources, uh, uh, the management, the, the, a lot of the professionals have been there for, you know, number of years. Um, and, you know, and then you start getting down to, you know, uranium energy. You know, I think at Hobson and, and what they've got in South Texas is still uh, is still pretty solid. It's not big. I worked for a company down there many years ago that uh, moved on to Wyoming just because the deposits were bigger and it gave you a much, uh, you know, longer mine life. But, you know, uranium energy is involved now in, in Wyoming. And so, you know, I think they show a lot. You know, your energy, 
you know, they've been in production for several years. I think it, it's a well-run company. Uh, Peninsula, I think they're still struggling a bit at Lance. But again, I know Wayne highly, really, really well. And, and you know, he's extremely uh, t- talented in the uh, operational technical side. Uh, but then you get into, you know, a, a whole group, as you mentioned, of maybe it, they've got one small deposit. They may have a couple of people involved. So it's really hard to get, you know, when the, when the price takes even a more significant move up, which I think it will, you know, rising tide will lift all boats. So I think, you know, there will be a, a general uh, improvement in share prices. But but to try to pick out specific companies kind of below, you know, I hate to call it tier one, you know, in the U.S., but it really is. Then you get into those that have, you know, like I said, small deposits, and they probably really aren't interested in getting into production. You know, that'll be a, a whole other area. The last time we had the big price uplift, I know, as you're well aware, outside of Kazakhstan, there was really the two Paladin mines that were kind of ready to go forward fairly quickly, and they got into production. I mean, you know, a number of the guys in Wyoming, it took them, you know, four or five years just to get their permitting done. So, you know, the list is pretty small on what I consider companies that are likely to get into production. But I think some of them have a, a business model of, well, we'll be bought out. And so we'll kind of keep, you know, we'll drill some holes and, and you know, put minimal uh, uh, investment in our company and our projects because we're never going to be a producer anyway. So not to say that's right. a bad strategy, but they're not going to put uranium in a can. And, th- and that's okay. So. Yeah, I think that I think that works for some, especially the ones that are have a good management team and a good project. I, I think some some are a little bit on the faker side when it comes to obviously being able to commission commission a plant, Dustin, as you know, and yeah. that that's a whole nother hassle and, and entering into contracts and delivering and dealing with the the boats and the ports and everything else. So it is it is really a, a whole different uh, situation. It's not like uh, you know stuff in, certainly in this industry. Uh, you know, stuff that has, has some issues you have to, you have to hack through and a lot of red tape. And so it'll be interesting there. And, and you are in, in energy fuel, certainly. And, you know, there's some other ones in the States there and, uh, you know, Uranium Energy Corp could, could probably look at energy fuels playbook to, to kind of help catch themselves up. But uh, nonetheless, but yeah, but it takes a big um, commit, you know, Andrew, it takes a big commitment. I mean, that was the big plus with Paladin, uh, you know, John Borshoff, you know, kind of has, he's like me, kind of has uranium in his blood and he was going to build a uranium production company. And so he was willing to take that risk and bring in the people early and, and kind of do soup to nuts, you know, everything from exploration through transportation logistics on the final product. But as you know, that takes a lot of capital, takes a lot of expertise and, and takes that commitment by management and the board and, being able to convince uh, investors that it's a, a good move to make early in the cycle. But I think a lot of these guys are saying, well, we just, you know, uh, we had the run up and then we had Fukushima and, uh, you know, we'll just kind of wait and see, you know, what happens right. and then we'll kind of implement some kind of business plan, I guess. So, so anyway, which again has implications for the utilities. 
and they tend to not be quite as uh, uh, understanding. You know, they'll look at projects on a spreadsheet and go, well, you know, they say they're going to produce in 2021, and there's like they've got nothing at this point. Well, it takes years to get these projects going. So. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, and 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 certainly for those companies out there that are going to try to go from drill holes all the way to to cake in a can uh, coming out <laughs> uh, delivered delivered to the port, it will be quite quite a move, and and uh, oh yeah, it's it's extremely difficult to be able to do that, but uh, but as we can tell from the last cycle, uh, Paladin was able to do that, and and they were obviously uh, one of the top performers of of the cycle, so it'll be interesting to see who does that this time and uh how, how things play out so uh <clears throat> moving on in your opinion why did the large majority of of the businesses in the last cycle fail to lock in long-term contracts in excess of 50 per pound uranium that would have provided operational sustainability post fukushima well again you know i, I think we talked earlier my area of involvement has been principally long-term contracts and kind of that whole aspect of the industry. And, you know, not to kind of uh, go back in history too much, uh, but that was one thing with Paladin. You know, John recognized that marketing was a critical element of being a uranium company. In other words, this isn't a commodity that you can sell on a computer terminal. You know, you push enter and you've just sold 100,000 pounds for five years. You literally have to go out and all the utilities are different. I mean, there's a kind of an assumption that let's even pick the U.S. You know, there's, I think, 23 uranium buying organizations in the U.S., certainly around 20. And all of them have different kind of approaches to the market. In other words, what do they want to see? Uh, you know, what is your credibility? I mean, they really want to have, be comfortable that if they commit to a certain group that they're likely to receive the pounds they're in the industry to operate reactors okay and they need to have that fuel there is no uh excuse not to have fuel when a reactor is being you know refueled and so they have to trust and i think part of what the paladin is you know they were ready to go and the projects looked good the financing uh, was lined up and, uh, you know, some of the people they hired had good relationships with the fuel managers to where they said, yeah, you know, if you tell me this is going to happen, I'm pretty comfortable that it will. But I think some of the other companies didn't realize you've got to make that expenditure uh, on the, on the um, contracting marketing side. You've got to send the marketers out. They've got to meet with the utilities Make sure the utilities understand, you know, the project, the timing, the environment. Um, and, and, you know, that's how you end up with, you know, that that group of, you know, bankable contracts, which were certainly there. But I think a lot of the companies, again, they were too far back in the process to go out and get contracts. And so I think, you know, you've got to be there at the old right right time with the right product. And that's how you get that 60, 70. I think at Paladin, we did some contracts that were above $70. Now, it would have been nice if we would have, the market would have 
than sustainable, and we could have either extended those um, or, you know, even gotten uh, new contracts. But, you know, Fukushima came in, and that pretty much, as they say, marked paid on, you know, long-term contracting. You know, when the spot price starts to drop from 70, eventually down below 30, you know, the utilities step back and say, well, wait a minute, I don't know where this is going to stop. And so I think that was it was a matter of timing for a lot of these groups. So, right, and and you know the other part you know too to that is is you know locking locking in at seventy dollars a pound that sounds really nice. Obviously, quantity and time matters. Had that been a ten year contract with a significant quantity, oh boy, um, that would have been nice. But yeah, yeah, absolutely, certainly it, it is it is an issue, and it'll be interesting to see how how folks reconsider and how they play their cards. I know Mark Mark and I chatted about this as well and um it, it's going to be interesting to see where where people start locking you know maybe just a little bit yes. of operational funding and then and then moving sure. on you know are you going to maybe lock 15 20% of capacity at at 50 and then maybe lock some more and then leave some for speculation you know it's it's going to be interesting to see how that goes and uh, and then that's not an easy you know in fact you you mentioned talking to my friend Mark Chalmers he and I sat down yesterday and had a similar discussion of, you know, as the market improves, um, say you can produce the number 4 million pounds, how do you lay that off? You know, what price levels, what duration, who the customers, the customers are all, uh, you know, people think a utility, they're all the same and they're not. There are better customers to work with than others. Do you, do you market offshore? You know, that's one thing Energy Fuels, for example, has focused principally on U.S. utilities and now beginning to say, well, should we be out talking to the Chinese, the Middle East, the, the Indians, the, you know, Europeans, um, you know, because Peninsula did a very nice contract with the French. So, I mean, it, it starts to raise a number of, of fundamental questions for the business model. Is, is how do you lay that product off? Right. So anyway, you know, that's, uh, it, like you say, it'll be very interesting to see as the price moves up, uh, you know, how that happens. So. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's complicated. And when you're throwing in boats and everything else in foreign countries into it, uh, from the standpoint of a U.S. Uh, company, it, it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. But the good thing about Mark is, is he's got his connections oh. internationally already, being an Australian and so forth is 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 good good for his situation. But I I can tell you well, his immediate thing, problem is is how how is he how is he Dustin is how is he gonna get his long term contracts fixed in at you at vanadium prices right now? <laughs> there are no long term contracts, so you don't even have to worry about it. Yeah, right. I, right. So, yeah, so I work for the old yeah. Energy Fuels, and we, you know we the, the companies produced vanadium in the past, as you well know, and there are no long term fixed price contracts. So right. you may get a multi-year deal, but it'll be, as you know, mark to market at time of delivery. But yeah, I hear the price is like 28 for vanadium, and it would be nice to lock that in for a while. But anyway, but yeah, just quick, well, yeah, a quick no. comment. You, you you keep coming back to transportation, and uh, you know we may or may not touch on Namibia, which is one of the preferred uranium mining jurisdictions. Well, shipments out of Walvis Bay, the only deep water port there was one ship a month and sometimes it didn't call at Walvis Bay so it had all kinds of implications for 
you know, where did you lay off your inventory? When did you ship it? Uh, and it was owned by the Russians, the, the shipping lines. So it was one right. ship a month that would come in. Excuse me, I don't know if I think I said a day. One ship a month that came into the port that would carry Class 7 cargo. Right, and and that and and I would imagine that whole that whole deck of that boat was uh, was rented to Paladin. <laughs> well, or to uh, Rossing. I, I mean, right. it, everybody ships out of Walvis Bay. So, so anyway, long story short, just the transportation side can be. Uh, and now we've got new quote channels of shipping to Shanghai and to Mumbai, and so that's a right. whole new set of. You know, issues, shipping lines, schedule. Anyway, so it, it's no, it's, it's got it, it. It has a set of complexities, and you certainly have to have connections with the shipping lines because there's oh. not very many out there that are going to transport uh, this material. And so, you know, because I'm sure it's got plenty of licensing problems within itself. And uh, oh, yeah. it's, it's interesting to see to see how that'll go this time around. And uh, and with with the Chalmers thing on on uh, vanadium. I would just I would just say that you know our, our our views changing a little bit on it and even if it's at a discount 2015 take take a two to three two to three year contract if you can get it and offer up the di the discount as a sweetener and so I I think that's that's a good situation because I don't I don't see yeah. uh, you know pe people are going to disagree with this but uh, vanadium I I don't see it uh, I don't I don't see it holding for long so. Anyway, <laughs> well, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like uranium. It goes up, spikes, comes down. So, right. yeah, it, it's kind of a very, it's got its own set of quirks. And, you, you know, like you, you say, I'd love to, but, but a high price gives you options, which sometimes creates more complex decisions. Do you sell at yes. that discount? So, anyway, yeah. Right. It's, yeah. It's absolutely. A lot absolutely. Of fun no, for the marketers. And then with that, I'll say too, when when we were talking about the long term contract stuff, um, you know, a lot of these a lot of these businesses probably should be calling you because you have those relationships. So I'm not sure what your your hourly fee is or daily fee is, but uh, it's probably well worth it. So I, I would uh, like to think any, so. It's pretty pretty modest actually. So uh, <laughs> well, it, it, it's there's a good there's a good network of connections and you have them. So. Uh, I'm going to skip just this one here and move on on, on the question list I had here. Um, but more or less, <clears throat> Mark and I had a, had a discussion about why the majors like the BHPs, the Rios, and the techs are not looking at the state of the uranium industry and thinking from a value standpoint and a math standpoint, why why wouldn't we start to get back involved? And with that, we, we just sent a letter to uh, some of the royalty companies, uh, the Sandstorms, the Silver Wheatons, the Francos, uh, and the Mavericks is, and and those those folks and the Royal Golds, uh, a little bit of a stir up uh, of hey, mm -hmm. you know what, you guys you guys might be looking at you guys might be focused on precious metals, but you know what, we see that you have copper, we see that you have zinc, we we see that you have these other uh, you know base metals involved in your portfolios, and you guys are looking for deals. Franco was mm -hmm. involved with some oil deals, and uh, the bottom line of it is is. You know, um, these, these we've had some responses. Well, you know, we, we're focused. Our investors are focused on precious metals, and that's our focus. And I said, well, that's fine. You know, if you guys have 51% of your portfolio in precious metals, that's great. But you can you can speculate with some of the other pieces. And right now, the uranium industry looks ripe for uh, potentially some deals. And uh, yep. with that, um, 
you know, it's the same thing. I We mentioned it today. You know, McDonald's, you know, they're known for hamburgers. But you know what? They've changed their menu. They've appealed to new yeah. customers. They've got other things. They sell coffee. They sell donuts. They sell whatever else you want to call it. They sell different different things on the menus besides hamburgers. And they have a nice, diverse real estate portfolio. Yep. And uh, so you have to look at value. You can't. So in the, in the natural resource industry, if you're a royalty company, you would look at the natural resource industry as a whole. And right now we, we kind of said, you know, maybe look at uranium and there is some potentials for some good deals. So we stirred the market just a little bit this week with with that. Letter. Anyway, nonetheless, uh, comments on that one. Yeah, I think if you mentioned some of the majors, um, you know, like Rio Tinto. Obviously, with the Ranger mine in the Northern Territory of Australia effectively closing in 2021, uh, and now their sale of Rossing uh, to the Chinese, you know, they're they're exiting the industry. And I think what you know, I know them quite well, um, and I think the feeling is this industry is complicated. It's subject to massive black swan events, and you know, we've got these other 58 projects. And, and, you know, uranium just will take up too much of our time. So that's one thing. I think I don't I was just asked the other day, well, you know, the price goes up to pick a number 50, 60. You're going to see, you know, the big mining companies come in and buy up some of these projects. And I don't think so. They basically put uranium. It's not even on the back burner. They've pushed it off the back of the stove. And it's like too complicated, takes too much time. <laughs> which then creates opportunities, though. You see me, I'm always looking for the upside. The companies that do focus on it, be it a Cameco, be it a Energy Fuels, be it, you know, maybe a Deep Yellow where John is now, uh, it creates more opportunities. You don't have to go out and, you know, slug it out with, you know, Rio Tinto uh, to get projects. They're just, they're just not going to come back, I don't think, because they'll go, well, wait a minute. What if there's another, you know, Chernobyl, you know, and, and you go, well, yeah, but, you know, look at the value that you can create. But I don't think the industry in their mind is big enough. This is why, you know, why isn't, uh, you know, there's a futures market and all that. Well, it's the industry's too small. And so maybe that's, you know, that's the case where. It doesn't pop up on some of the radars. And I think, you know, some of the royalty companies, this is fairly new. You know, Uranium Royalty Corp is, has been created to focus, obviously, on uranium. And, uh, you know, it's a financing vehicle that has not really had any role to play in uranium. And I think it's because they look at it and they say it's too complicated. You know, I want to look at gold. I mean, you know, the Indians have weddings and they're going to buy a bunch of gold. I mean, you know, you look at uranium and you go, well, <laughs> well, not to get too far off, but look at the changes in the perception of demand. You know, just yesterday or day before in France, the president said, well, wait a minute. You know, we're still trying to get from 75 percent to 50 percent of our electricity generated by, you know, nuclear. But if you look at the numbers, the only what he's proposing is a cutback of 20 percent in the nuclear fleet because demand is growing. And so, you know, and we had Taiwan, you know, new government comes in. Hey, we're getting out of this. And, and I know the Taiwanese really well. They were a, 
big customer for Paladin. And so they've cut back on buying. They were ready to shut down. And now they have the referendum and the population says, no, we want to have nuclear. And so literally they're now saying, oop, we better look at that phase out schedule. And, and so anyway, I think that all of those complexities kind of scares the companies that haven't been in, in uh, nuclear or uranium. And, and so then they've got to make a commitment. You know, and again, back on the Yellow Cake IPO, it's, a, it's clear there's a number of these big investment firms that have looked at things like you and I have and have come to the same conclusion. You know, we're talking major problems on the supply side, even in a higher priced environment, just because of the lag times, lack of people. I mean, you name it, you know, all the factors. And so, you know, but it takes a, a while to get comfortable with that. This isn't iron ore, it isn't nickel, it isn't copper. You can't use that computer model that you plug in the number of radiators they're going to build in Mumbai for their cars. And so I think that's what kind of makes it, you know, either a unique unique niche or one where people just say, I don't want to, I can't make the commitment to be comfortable that I know what I'm doing. So. I agree. No, uh, interesting, interesting points. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> well, I'm going to skip a few questions here. I, I wanted to know uh, for, for some of the readers and listeners. Uh, so with your consultancy with energy fuels, uh, it, it's not 100 percent clear out there. And, and I think some folks are probably wondering, is the White Mesa mill actually currently outfitted to separate and process vanadium ore or is that still being upgraded? No, it's always the mill has had a vanadium circuit for you know 25 years. So they produced vanadium in the in the past because the Colorado Plateau mines, which I'm sure Mark probably mentioned, are uranium vanadium, and so depending right. on where the vanadium price was, they would fire up the vanadium circuit and recover that. But you know, as you know, the current plan is to recover the vanadium out of the ponds. Because when the price was really low, they just discharged it. You know, Langer Heinrich's got vanadium, but right. it's being discharged or was when the project was operating into the ponds because it wasn't, right. didn't have enough value to justify being recovered. But yeah, the, the White Mesa Mill is an interesting uh, facility because, as you know, it's processed alternate feed material, which is really kind of waste material uh, that's in various. Uh, places around the country. It's done the Colorado Plateau ore. It's done the high-grade Arizona Strip breach of pipe ores. Uh, it's been campaigned. It goes up and down. Uh, it really is kind of, it's been always been a unique animal in the business. Right. No, and, it, and, it's, and it's the best place. You know, it's the only licensed facility. Um, yeah. Your, your energy fuels has a lot of leverage right now, so it, it's a good mm -hmm. it's a good situation to be in. And anybody who wants to take a crack at doing a new mill, getting the licensing oh. and dealing with all that, good good luck. But your best your best chance might be in 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 Utah or Wyoming. And if you're trying in another state, you might as well just just throw up your hands and call it good. Yeah, you're you're so, yeah. People don't realize, and just to touch on it, it's like building a new mill in the Athabasca Basin of Saskatchewan. You know, Gipsel has stood up publicly and said, "Hey, we've done it." And it's 10 to 12 years. And it's regardless right. of the market. I mean, the market's got to be to a certain level to trigger that process, basically. 
but that's how long it takes. So you're not going right. to get those pounds in a can for more than a decade. And I think the same thing applies in the U.S. There's just no way to fast track a uranium mill in the United States, a conventional mill. So it's too bad they dismantled all of those mills in New Mexico and, you know, in Colorado and Utah and Wyoming. And, and you know, they're physically gone. So right. that would have been a very valuable asset to have. So, Absolutely. Well, moving on here. So um, everyone fears a, a, future, a future Fukushima type event. How do you see that playing out with regards to the price of the uranium and if the industry faces another disaster? Same as last time, or are the dynamics in the market different? Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, part of it is where might that take place? I mean, I think the probabilities are low, but the outcomes are, you know, if it happens, pretty, you know, beyond significant. But if, again, if, you know, it's like if it happens in Ukraine, is different than if it happens in, you know, Arizona. So I think the industry learns each time one of these things happens. Obviously, Chernobyl was the design of the reactor, and they're not building any more of those, and they're decommissioning the ones that have been operating. Uh, Three Mile Island, there was no release of radiation. So actually, the machine did what it was supposed to do, but everybody got, you know, overly excited. And Fukushima, I mean, as you know, those units were to be decommissioned because they were the original GE units. And it was kind of a non-nuclear side of it that caused the ultimate event because the, the generators, the diesel generator fuel supply was cut off. So, you know, you'd like to think it's not likely to happen again. And, and I think it, it isn't. But then you say, well, then right. what is it? You know, is that the final nail to where the supply sector says we're not dealing with this anymore? You know, there's rumors about the Metropolis conversion plant that is, you know, owned by Honeywell that is currently shut down uh, and it may never come back because Honeywell goes, I don't care what the price of conversion is. We don't want the headaches of this business. So it kind of gets back to your your question about, you know, why won't the big guys come in? I think they just see it as something they don't want to deal with. So, right. Well, at least there's still a few motivated people out there to maybe step in and do something about it. But yeah, no, I would I would say just just looking at I think the the first commercial reactor that entered into production I think it was in the UK some sixty sixty two sixty three yep. years ago I can't remember. And uh, you know just just look at the events and if you cancel Three Mile Island out, uh, you look yeah. you look at the the events. I mean it you know. The time is on our side. Let's just put it that way. Oh, um, yeah. I so. mean, there was. I mean, I, I can't quote the number, but as you say, all these units operating for decades in a safe right. manner. And again, Chernobyl was a unique design, an RBMK, and you know, Three Mile Island, there was no release of radiation, and the core melted. Right. I mean, I've seen the videos of it, and the machine did what it was supposed to do. So. Anyway, right. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, let's see. Moving on, back to section two thirty-two. There's two questions here. Um, well, we'll get to the first one. Uh, is there is there a possibility that U.S. utilities will receive receive additional relief uh, in some shape or form of head, ahead of a two thirty-two decision? 
either on a state or federal basis. Uh, for example, you know, maybe a credit for producing baseload carbon-free energy. Oh, well, yeah, that's already happening. I think, you know, the, the whole, the trend in the U.S. where the, first of all, basically it, it works out to where half the reactors are in regulated markets and half are in merchant markets. It, it's a, almost an equal split. And so what we saw in the merchant markets is low-cost gas comes in, displaces nuclear, which is still very inexpensive, but it's hard to compete against $3 gas. Um, and so these units were going to, quote, prematurely shut down for, for economic reasons, not for, you know, a technical issue or, you know, it's like the steam generator at uh, San Onofre. You know, they just uh, Southern California and said, we just they're not going to replace this thing. So anyway, long story short. But, yeah, I mean, a number of the states have stepped in already. I see New Jersey just uh, agreed to do the zero emission credit program to support the nuclear plants that were kind of on the bubble. And so I think that's already happening. Uh, you know, I, I think most people don't see a big cutback in U.S. nuclear generation. Yeah, smaller single units that are in merchant markets, you know, tend to be under the microscope. But I think the states and it's, you know, like Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, you know, it's across the board almost. And they're going, well, wait a minute, what are we going to do if this shuts down from an employment standpoint, from tax revenues, from reliability of our power, you know, and they're saying, hey, let's come up with some scheme, which they actually are, to to support these units. And that's what's happening. So it's, so it's already happening. Right. Okay. Well, do you believe that uh, UR Energy and Energy Fuels will be punished by the U.S. utilities for not for their initiating Section 232? If 232 fails to support the petitioners, do you see U.S. utilities looking elsewhere to place their orders in, in retribution against UR Energy and Energy Fuels? Um, you know, that's a hard call. I mean, they may want to posture and say, well, yeah, you guys are going to be at a disadvantage. But at the end of the day, you know, we haven't really gotten into it much. The contraction of the uranium production supply side is significant. And so they're not going to have a whole lot of alternatives uh, when it comes to signing contracts. Now, if a little guy, and I don't want to name any in the U.S., comes up and it can be evaluated as equivalent to maybe an energy fuels or your energy, would somebody sign a contract with them, give them preferential treatment? But I, I you know, the idea of complete blackballing of these guys, because again, it was, it's a national defense issue. It's really not, let's see if we can, you know, back the utilities into a corner and, and get what we can out of them. So um, I guess I'm not overly concerned about that. So, and, you know, I mean, let's face it, if your energy fuels or your energy, you should be looking at sales outside the U.S. anyway. And I think they Absolutely. need to get away from the, the image that, well, if we're blackballed, we're dead, rather than, well, no, we're like Peninsula. We sign a contract with the French or we go to China and we do one with China General or something like that, you know, not to say we don't need you, but this is a global market. It has been for decades. 
And there is a, you know, the utilities globally want diversification. Everybody says, well, just have Kazakhstan produce 200 million pounds a year. Well, that's not going to happen. So. Right. No, absolutely. No, that's a good, good point. And, uh, yeah, there is global competition. And uh, you know what? We may go somewhere else where the market's thriving quite well. So on, mm-hmm. on, the, on your last comment there, you said Kazakhstan. Uh, what is your thought regarding the decline rates in Kazakhstan and are further production cuts likely out of Kazataprom? Um, what I've, I've been told, and again, my, my experience with ISR has been mostly Wyoming, where you get a pretty quick run-up in your uh, – your recoveries and a, a fairly steep decline, and and what I'm I'm hearing out of Kazakhstan is it's a very slow ramp up on well fields, and then it's a very long decline because they stopped putting in well fields two or three years ago, and now the the cutbacks in production were going to happen anyway, but it's always better to say well because of this that's why we're doing that. Um, and so I think that's what you're going to see. And I mean, there's been presentations by senior people like from Uranium One that are saying, you know, there, there's going to be a natural decline in production unless they get out there and put a bunch of money into drilling. Because see, these projects were kind of shovel ready. There'd been a lot of capital to put into them already. And then they brought in a lot of foreign partners to kind of get across the goal line. But they haven't been doing any uh, explorations. And so I think there was one uh, presentation in Madrid this year where the uh, the senior geologist of Uranium One said, well, if this keeps up, uh, production will be down by 40% by the end of the 2020s, no matter what. So again, people, you know, there's an endless supply of cheap uranium. Well, no, if you'll notice some of the projects didn't go ahead because of economics in Kazakhstan. They went after, big surprise, the low-hanging fruit to start. And now as they get into different regions, much deeper, less permeable, I've heard 10 times the acid consumption. So you're not talking $12 pounds here. So, you know, I think, you know, Kazakhstan, now they've got their first IPO. So they've got some funds and we'll see you know, how they use those uh, to either do some of that exploration and potential development or just sit on it or uh, who knows. So. Right. And I, you know, on, on those, on those subjects, if, if the decline rates in the wells are anything close to what you'd expect from a normal fracker oil and gas, then uh, two to three years, it's, it's, it's going to start slowing down. It's, it's, yeah. So there's, that's reinforcing. If it compares anything close to oil and gas, which I think it does, there's a lot of similarities. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I think that's right. And, that, yeah. and the other part, and, part is the ramp up. In other words, people are saying, well, the price gets to 40 or 50 and the Kazakhs go, well, okay, we're going to come back. It takes them, they got to go out and drill the wells, assify them, get, you know, and, and that takes apparently maybe uh, 18 to 24 months at least. So it's right. not like well you drill a an oil well and here comes the gusher. It it's got a, a real slow ramp up on the on the production side. Right. And and given now that they're they're a public company listed in London, there's some different <laughs> views and some different motives 
um, in terms yeah. of, you know, maybe, maybe maximizing that share price if they can, they can control that share price, uh, yep. more or less by, uh, by what they do with the production. So I think, I think the tides turn on that angle. And I think if they have any, any brains, I think that they'll, uh, do the right thing, if you know what I mean. So, oh, oh yeah. And it, yeah. Interesting stuff. So, uh, uh, moving on another, another question, um, we already kind of touched on this, so maybe you have a quick answer, but regarding the supply-demand picture of uranium and increasing uncovered requirements of the material, do you see utilities' interest in securing material increasing, or are they still too complacent about the fundamentals? Um, I think they're beginning to learn more about the market fundamentals. Again, they've been relying on some market consultants that have, I think, a very optimistic view of future supply. I think, you know, you and I have talked, I call it the big valve in the sky. You need more uranium, price goes up to some level, and it just, it happens. And I think they're beginning to realize that's not going to be the case. And particularly as we see the consolidation, you know, the fact to pick on the Rossing sale. You know, Rossing can continue to operate, but, you know, I think the sense is anything that's not already committed by Rio Tinto is going to go to China. And so, it, 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 you know, they're beginning to look around and say, well, you know, where will these pounds come from? You know, Canada, they've got the one operating mine now. And as uh, Gitzel has said, they are not putting a dime into anything like Millennium, which is the replacement for cigar. And cigar runs out of reserves. It's a finite uh, resource. And it runs out in 2028. And he's very upfront. He said, we should be investing in the replacement deposit, and we're not. So, you know, I think that that's be, they look at the price and mostly the spot price. And you say, well, wait a minute, that's a really, that's a generally a small part of the market. And it's tag-in sales. You know, people got a little bit to sell or whatever, but it's been heavily influenced by excess inventories, you know, post Fukushima. And so, you know, in the defense of some of the fuel managers, uh, if the spot price is 21, as it was, you know, as recently as April, and the best long-term price you can get is the high 30s or 40, it's really hard to take that contract upstairs in Charlotte or wherever you might be and get the vice president of nuclear to go, yeah, we should go ahead and commit to that. So I think that's been, you know, kind of what's been holding them off. But it was interesting. There was a comment by UX just Monday night that this uh, uh, lack of contracting, there's a, there's demand building up now behind the dam. And they're sitting, waiting for clarity on the 232, which, you know, is not till mid-April. And you can argue it won't be till July after the White House has its 90 days. Um, and then they're going to come in the market. And it's going to be mostly term demand. And it could be, you know, more interesting than we even think it's going to be. Because they're all kind of sitting back waiting to do those traditional long-term contracts. So, you know, are they using it? I think it's because they don't know where the market's going to go. You know, is it going to be affected by the 232 where speculation is 80 to $100 U.S. price? And then a, you know, a, a, an effectively lower non-U.S. price. We've had a bifurcated market in the past where U.S. origin got a premium. Um, so they don't, they kind of don't know. 
and they've been doing these short-term contracts of two to three years. So it's been buying time. So they can still refuel. They still look pretty good. But you get out to kind of 2021, and things can really start to change drastically. And I think they're beginning to appreciate that. So. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if, if the Trump administration just slaps a Buy American stamp on it and, and see see what happens. I mean, we, we certainly know the Buy American Act and, and all the other industries that have to do with that when it comes to contracting and different things. So it'll be interesting to see how they apply it. Um, yep. So switching gears a little bit over to the renewable energy stuff and, and some of these other environmental type uh, renewable energy questions. So there's an argument that... Re- renewable energy might replace all other forms of energy, including nuclear, if innovation on storing the renewable energy advances quick enough. What's your take on this, and what threats do you see for nuclear energy at this point? Oh, you know, I mean, like anything, if you give it a long enough time horizon, all things are possible. Um, I think at the end of the day, there's going to be a need for long-term, low-cost, reliable baseload power. And, and, you know, I'm all for it. If they can, you know, the renewable guys, I mean, the, the, the costs are coming down. Now, they've been heavily subsidized, as you well know. And, you know, Tesla's put their big battery down in Australia. I haven't heard much about that lately. But, you know, 20 years from now, I mean, I don't know. I don't think, and, and you know, will, will nuclear disappear I mean, nobody's seeing that. In fact, the latest forecast I saw has, you know, the industry growing about 30% on an install capacity uh, basis uh, by 2030, which is what I've been seeing elsewhere. Um, So that's kind of becoming, you know, a slow growth but positive environment. Now, down the road, if somebody can come up with some super cheap, solar thing that allows you to store, you know, the power and all that, you know, but then how much capital and time does it take to make that transition? So I think for, you know, investors today, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, they'll ask, well, what will happen in 2030? Well, um, I mean, I still think nuclear will be around, so. Right. No, I, I agree. And for us, for me, it's a non-threat. It's a non. It's just a non-issue. Yeah. Period. Because the the infrastructure is in place. Uh, there's just too many other factors. Trying to put batteries here and there, or store that here and there. The space requirements, the solar solar waste, the wind turbine waste, the space it takes on the landscape, the environmental concerns, the wildlife oh. concerns, just all the other crap. And then and then you have a sneaker. <clears throat> The sneaker is SMRs, and if SMRs are going to be deployed on a wide-scale basis post-2025, yeah. 2028, which there's a lot of money flowing into the SMRs and a lot of big names involved, uh, yeah. that could change the whole the whole thing significantly. Maybe maybe big plants, maybe not so much post-2050, but SMRs yeah. could be the new nuclear. I, I don't know. I'm just, just speculating, but I can tell you for this cycle and for the equities <laughs> – this is an audience. Oh, well, yeah. We're, all that's interesting stuff. And, and you know, like, say, the SMRs, you know, now they're saying, well, maybe the, the uh, U.S. Department of Defense uses them in Alaska. Yeah. I mean, they had one in the Antarctica or somewhere, uh, a small reactor. Um, but, yeah, the big reactors, um, 
you know, it's kind of tough. I mean, you see the big programs are all government. I mean, it's China, India, you know, the Middle East, wherever. Yep. It, it, it is a challenge for, as we know, the Georgia powers and the, you know, South Carolinas to really handle these big quadruple billion dollar plants. So that's, well, when people say, well, you know, gee, the U.S., Western Europe, parts of Asia. And, and yeah, that was the first phase. And now it's, it's you know, the shift is, is well entrenched on, as you know, China and elsewhere. So you right. know, the growth won't be in Western Europe or the United States or whatever. I think the view is U.S. program will stay relatively stable to maybe down a little bit. So it's not, right. this isn't where the action is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and and while we're talking about this, the coal plants just keep on rolling. So, you know, yep. it's it's interesting how, how that's going to go and, and when, when coal is going to be completely shut off for energy generation purposes. Oh, and oh yeah. I can tell you, we, we've got a number of years to go. <laughs> so, yep. uh, so on this issue, just let me, I got, uh, there's some other uh, questions on this and then I'll get your uh uh, your your view on it. So we had a re reader write in with a question regarding the true cost of the various forms of energy generation. While the cost will greatly vary depending on what nuclear power country we're talking about and also the energy forms in those countries, it's difficult to get an honest figure. Uh, there are issues with surcharges, government fees, regulatory hurdles, the cost of that, the operational costs, and much more that go into a figure to see on your power bill. So it's different in France, it's different in Germany, it's different in, in the United States, and depending on what state you live in. So we suspect yep. the figures for your uh, renewable are pumped and skewed due to various subsidies, credits, and discounts. So there remains to be too much hype and misinformation regarding renewables to be able to call it a true competitor. The technology is new enough that the jury is still out regarding true maintenance, repair, replacement costs. How many times do you replace wind and solar comp and components of them yep. through the totable usable life of a nuclear reactor? So there are also carbon pollution environmental costs which have not been fully translated yet. So these are tough issues that have not been answered with any sense. So Dustin, what's your take on the issue uh, and the very varied worldwide costs for the various forms of energy and their credible and and with that, do you have a credible source to start an investigation into these true costs? Uh, I'll, I'll answer your last question first. And the answer is no, that I'm aware of. I mean, it's being looked at, as you know, all over the world. Everybody's doing studies. But just as a benchmark for the listeners, um, you know, new reactors are 60-year operating life. And now in the U.S. And, and other countries, they're looking at 80 years. So when you bump up other forms of energy, you've got to be looking at almost a century going forward. So I think it's really hard like gas. I mean, I don't know a fuel manager out there in the U.S. that thinks gas will be at or below $4 for the next 60 years. But they can't convince management sometimes uh, that that's the case. So, again, I think, you know, assuming um, – I think the costs on the fuel side in nuclear will stay, you know, we're going to have to see some uplift across the board. I mean, enrichment services at $35 are a joke. But at the end of the day, I think it's because of the, the, the stability of, of the fuel costs and, and the role they play with a nuclear plant, um, 
you know, the, the, the NEI just put out a study a few weeks ago looking at uh, nuclear costs in 2017, and they're still at the low end of the, the spectrum. So, you know, what happens in the future? Are things going to get a lot cheaper on the, you know, as you say, the renewables and all that? Uh, you know, it, it's hard to any study because it's an economic study, and that's my background economics, is so dripping with assumptions that can be pe picked apart that, um, you know, and that's what makes, I think, you know, generation planning for the utilities extremely difficult. You know, do you go with the short-term gas turbines that are going to have to be replaced? You're facing, you know, volatile gas prices and on and on, or you go with a big capital intensive nuclear unit that generally you can control the costs fairly well going forward. So, you know, but to have any credible, like I said, there's so many almost unidentified costs, be it with any technology. I mean, let's face it, nuclear's had its share of subsidies. It's not, you know, totally clean in that regard. But, you know, at the end right. of the day, I think, uh, it, it's really hard to come up with, uh, you know, anything that's accurate. Right. No, and, and I think there was an article that just came out recently about about some of the uh, there's there's been some uh, declines in the in the operating costs on the nuclear plants. So that's mm -hmm. that's interesting to, to see that come out as well. And uh, you know, obviously, the United States has a lot of red tape, whereas a country like France, which has a significant amount of nuclear in its energy mix has some economies of scale and probably uh, yeah. probably cheaper operating. But then then there's other stuff, too. Like, for example, when you get your power bill, perhaps, for example, in Oregon, you have all this other stuff. You have hydro subsidies, <laughs> you have hydro taxes, you have fish taxes, you have, yep. you know, you have, you know, uh, crab taxes and you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever stuff that's in the river and all these taxes attached to an energy bill that comes from, say, a Pacific Power or these yep. other, you know, Portland General Electric, et cetera. And so, anyway, it's 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 a little bit laughable as well. But uh, so so moving on, jumping out of that. Um, so you know the utilities intimately. Give us a historical example of your dealings with them and getting a supply deal done. So kind of walk walk us through how, how you kind of get a supply deal done. Give us give us some info because you've done it. So basically, a term contract. Is yes. that what you're? Um, well, yeah, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I, you first of all got to represent a credible supply source. If, if you're viewed as, you know, the, the promoter, you know, without, you know, well, yeah, I trust this down the road. Uh, these are conservative guys. Like I said, they have to uh, operate these plants. You don't let a billion, multi-billion dollar plant sit idle uh, due to lack of fuel. And so, you know, they... Uh, first of all, have a diversification objective. And, and, you know, they they look at, they don't want everything from one country, one producer, one technology. So they do allocate um, on, a, on a global basis their, their fuel requirements. And what normally happens is, you know, and let's kind of use Paladin as an example. Uh, the focus was on the U.S. utilities because they tend to be the least covered going forward. So they're going to have more opportunities, you know, kind of closer in and, and a bigger volume. And, and the contracts are usually about 200,000 pounds. 
you know, and, and if you go to an Exelon, they burn 10 million. So they're willing to say, yeah, we'll do two, 300,000 pounds a year. And, you know, we'd like to see kind of this kind of pricing, depending on where the market is. You know, like today, I think they'd like to lock in, uh, you know, a $30 long-term contract. So you have to be responsive to the kind of, you know, how do they view the market? And part of that is getting to know them. I mean, and it's just literally, you know, lunches and dinners and talk to them at uh, uh, conferences and go visit them. And, and you can get the sense of, uh, you know, some of the utilities, uh, for example, have just stayed away from market-related contracts. Uh, Duke is an example of that. They tend to do uh, historically um, defined price, so base price or a series of fixed prices. Um, and then some of them will do due diligence. In other words, some of the utilities, not all, uh, have uh, geologic uh, consultants that they rely on. For example, Exelon has one who's based in Canada, and they'll review, you know, kind of all of the 43101s and bankable feasibility studies, which have to be done by reputable consultants. You know, you can't just have XYZ, you know, feasibility study company do it. And so, you know, it can take a while, particularly if you're a new producer. And so, you know, but you've got to, you know, the first phase is kind of getting your nose in the door, getting their attention, getting them to evaluate. Um, some of them will do off-market contracts where they don't have to do a public solicitation. Some of them are required to come out with a broadly-based solicitation that you then have to respond to. So, again, this gets back right. to knowing the utility. And, you know, then you you know, put the draft contract in place. And, you know, most of it's boilerplate. There's only three or four terms that are really of importance. And, you know, this usually takes place two or three years before initial production. So that's why you've got to get out and kind of do it early uh, as part of your, your business model. Now, having said that, you know, once you've uh, gotten their confidence, uh, for example, some of the follow uh contracts done for the Calakira project, which followed Langer. There was one utility that I won't identify. I called them and I said, well, we're looking for uh, contracts and $73. And he said, okay, I'll do that. Um, you know, it was a five-year, couple of hundred thousand pound a year deal. So you go, oh, okay. Uh, you know, so that, so that can happen. Actually, the bankable contracts for Langer, there was a piece missing literally up to the the final moment. And I literally was at the BMO conference with John and the utility called and said, okay, we'll fill in those two years with a, uh, you know, the appropriate volume and pricing. And that's how that came together. Everything else had been kind of put in place, but the banks were saying, well, you got it those two years, you've got to fill that in. So some of it is, um, you know, kind of if you're doing bankable feasibility contracts, the bank will tell you how many pounds for how long at what prices. And so you've got to go out and, and fill that, you know, those criteria. Right. And now, you know, that's not so easy usually. <laughs> 
Yeah, and this is this is good information. And what what exciting times when you got some of those calls, and and what a what a oh. simple call that one was. Uh, that, that's that's great. Yeah. And you know what I, my my suspicion is is <clears throat> when you call some of these folks going forward, uh, it's going to be perhaps uh, in some cases much easier than it was the first time around. So so good good for you, and and good for the companies who uh, who employ your services. Because uh, that's that's a good piece of information. So on on the well, and, uh, and you know, Andrew, just not to be big nose, as they say in Australia, uh, but actually one of the fuel managers for a large U.S. utility told me. He said when it was announced that I went to Paladin, he knew me well enough from my history. He said that put them on the radar. He said I I needed to then watch what they were doing. So some of it, right. the industry is still kind of personal relationships, and it's less so today than it was but it's still very important absolutely no and and the, and the wheel greasing so to speak is is an important piece and you know so so on on the procurement side public both the public procurements and the private procurements is is part of the the is there is everything based is the evaluation based on price or is there also technical ability in, included like reputational type questions on the technical proposals for these these uh procurements, or is it just solely based on price? Uh, the answer is, today, it's price is more important. But actually, um, you know, a long time ago, I worked for a company called Colorado Nuclear, and we did mostly procurement consulting for utilities. And they tended to use what was at that time total evaluated cost. So it was the economics and the um, the, the political risk, delivery risk, whatever. Sure. So they, it wasn't just a straight, you know, NPV calculation. Now, having said right. that, I also worked for another utility that uh, a supplier came in, clearly the economic winner for a long-term contract, and the utility, because they had to do a broad-based distribution, they said, you know, we don't want to sign with these guys, and I won't name names. So there was a way to kind of say, well, from a security of supply standpoint, you know, they got dinged on that and all of it. So, yeah, I think, you know, it's more than the economics clearly are important, but it's, you've got to have that delivery history and, you know, political risk evaluation and, and all of that, that, you know, they're going to get the pounds. They need the pounds at the end of the day. So. Right. So, so tell tell us what your typical day is like, and and what things are you enjoying while you're not at your desk? <laughs> Up here, well, I think as you know, we just relocated to Steamboat Springs in in northwestern Colorado, and so you know Becky and I are probably beyond our ski every day kind of thing, but uh, but yeah, there's you know just enjoying being up here, and the others grandchildren. As you're aware, we've got a whole herd down in Scottsdale. So that's a nice place to go in the winter, and so that's kind of uh, you know what we've been what we've been focusing on. And I just enjoy the industry. I mean, people say, "Why are you doing this?" And it's just I think coming into next year, I think 2019 is going to be what I like to call a confluence of events, be it supply cuts, be it demand hit the market, 232 decisions. We haven't talked the worldwide Kazakh arbitration. There's a lot of things that uh, could come together, which will make it extremely exciting on, uh, from a positive standpoint. 
so yeah, I probably spend a little too much time still in the industry, but it, you know, I've been doing it as you know since 1973, so it gets right. it gets well, in your blood. <laughs> right. Well, I'll leave I'll leave the uh, the favorite microbrew question out of the out of the discussion. Oh, well, that yeah, that's so, another story. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so with with this new uh, uranium royalty corp, which I have not uh, studied on, but I I have uh, seen some promotion already coming out of it, so it's making me run the other way a little bit, but. They did pick up a stake in Yellow Cake. So, what do you think of this new URC and, and the people behind it? Uh, well, it really kind of came out of uh, Uranium Energy. So, it, it's Amir and, and Scott Melby, I know, is, is a senior person there. Um, you know, I think they stepped back and said, you know, the industry needs a variety of financing vehicles. And as you pointed out earlier, uh, the royalty side is just never you know, been part of of this business. So I think they said, well, hey, here's something that would provide an alternative for producers to raise some amount of capital to move these projects forward. It's not going to all be bank financing or equity. And so, you know, uh, there was a presentation at the big conference in Boston, you know, a month or so ago, and uh, I think it raised a lot of eyebrows just from a, hey, we hadn't thought of that kind of, of basis. So I think at this point, it's, it's still a bit early days. But, you know, my view is, hey, anybody that can come in and, and bring something new and different, I'm all for. And uh, so I think at this point, I mean, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. And, yeah, they stepped up. And, and took a, a, a nice foundation share of yellow cake. And so that was a, a big help, as you know, the IPO side. If you have a couple of large investors to start with, that tends to tamp down the, uh, the concerns a little bit. So, you know, I've known Scott, I've known Amir since he got in the business, which is now 15 years ago. And, you know, was the prime mover with uranium energy and you know, has done a lot uh, on the production side. And Scott, I've known since he got in, you know, right out of college. And, you know, I've, he and I have had a, a close, uh, you know, business relationship for years. And uh, so, you know, we kind of think, as you know, from along the same lines, uh, singing from the same sheet of music. Um, so I'm like, yeah, I think this, you know, is it going to be the, the answer? Well, probably not, but I think it's part of the answer for, say, capital for new development. Right. Absolutely. So on, on, on Yellow Cake, uh, real quick, um, you guys have bought quite a chunk. Um, what's, what's your, what's <laughs> yep. your take here at uh, 30, at 30 bucks, uh, 29 bucks? What's your take here? Are you guys looking to maybe secure a little bit more, uh, in 2019? Uh, well, you know, the, the basics for yellow cake where we bought, uh, 8.1 million pounds from Kaz Adam Prom under a, a long-term contract. Uh, at the time it was July it was $21 based upon the timing of setting the price and things like that. Um, we then bought another tranche from them under the contract. But, you know, we've got the right to buy up to $100 million a year from them of uranium. Uh, so it's a dollar figure. 
for the next nine years. And so it is interesting because we are now coming up on the first of the nine annual options. And, you know, we're beginning to look at, well, I, I think it, to me, it's clear the price will continue to move up. You know, we've hit a little bit of a plateau here at 29. Cameco's got to buy another 15 million next year. And, you know, even UX said that this year there was a 10 million pound deficit between supply and demand in the market. And that was being filled through, you know, consumption of inventories. So, you know, the cheap pounds are being vacuumed out of the market. And so, um, you know, we're pretty comfortable. Things will continue to move up. But then, you know, do we do the whole option in January? Do we do part? Do, you know, so, I mean, that's kind of what we're looking at. And then we have the the alternative of just buying in the market. We don't have to buy from uh, Kaz Adam Prom. And so that's another issue. You know, we have other financial buyers coming in. I guess Uranium Trading Corp is uh, what next week is supposed to do their IPO. So, you know, we, and we're seeing more and more of that pressure. So I think, yeah, I, I won't say it's a no brainer, but I'd say that the probability of higher prices next year is certainly greater than lower. So the right. answer is, is, yeah, I think you'll see yellow cake. Uh, you know, again, depending on where the nav and the, you know, uh, the stars align, uh, we're likely to be in the market, uh, either buying under the Kazakh deal or directly in the market. So, right, Inter- interesting. So, where's where's uh, for the clients and the clients that you're buying from? Uh, where where are these? Where are you storing this stuff at? Well, it's all stored right now at Cameco. But we will be putting uh, storage agreements in place in in Europe and uh, in in the U.S. at Converdine. So we'll be able to, you know, move material around. And, you know, there was a recent opportunity for uh, a a location swap of like 75 cents a pound, which we could have done part of it. And, And, you know, so there's things like that crop up if you've got storage agreements at all three converters. So, yeah, I mean, but Yellow Cake right. doesn't plan to sell anything. You know, we are a buy and hold uh, business model. We're not going to trade. You know, we could do, you know, do some trading. I've got a background in nuclear fuel trading, but it's sit on the asset and the investors can then act on their view of the future on pricing of the of the commodity. So. Right, right. So, uh, so I have to ask because we've we've talked about both companies. So, if, if you had to pick one, energy fuels or UEC, which one would you take? Well, I favor energy fuels just because I know the guys. I've known them. I work for the old energy fuels, and I know right. the mill. I know the you know the Alta Mesa ISR project. Paul Gorenson and I worked together. I did the marketing, and he did the construction and operation. So I just you know I know them. More, although, you know, I know the guys that, you know, the, the, all the other guys pretty well. But, yeah, I, you know, energy fuels, I think, just because of the diversity of of projects, the production capability, the, you know, you just run down the list, I, I think is really in a, a premier position in the United States. Right. So uh, so tell us what your schedule is over the next six months and uh, where can f- uh, folks find you? <laughs> Uh, well, again, you know, I'll be in and out of uh, Steamboat. We'll be down in Arizona. 
I have a, a hip replacement in January, so I'll definitely be at my desk. But uh, but yeah, so I'm you know I'm available. Uh, email is you know dustin.garrow at gmail dot com, and uh, I can be reached by a phone at seven two zero nine three three eight eight six zero. Pretty much anywhere in the world, as you know. So, but yeah, you know, I'm, uh, I also do work for Bannerman, which has the Atango project in Namibia, uh, in addition to Yellow Cake and uh, Energy Fuels. So, kind of three days a week at this point. So, any uh, any conferences coming up that you're going to attend in the next six months? Uh, yeah, the big one uh, will be in April. It's a combined World Nuclear Association Nuclear Energy Institute gathering, which was in Madrid last year. Uh, so this year it was supposed to be in Shanghai, but apparently there's some issues about visas being issued. And so it'll be in the Miami area. So that'll be uh, the first big industry gathering of the year will be, you know, in April, uh, somewhere in South Florida. Okay. Well, Dustin, it's always a pleasure and we look forward to having you back again soon. Um Happy to comment on the industry, and like I said, it's in my blood, so I always have uh, have views to share. Well, thank you very much, Dustin. You have a you have okay. a good one. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you, Andrew. Bye now.